Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Got a bonus episode for you this week. It's uh, my friend Danny Goldman. You may know him as Daniel Goldman. He wrote a huge book a couple decades ago, a huge book called Emotional Intelligence, which was really uh, a paradigm-shifting uh, book about uh, not being yanked around by your emotions. It was informed in part by his many years as a science journalist, but also in part by his uh, decades as a meditator. And I became friends with him several years ago. He's he's uh, part of this group that sometimes is referred to as the Jubus, uh, a bunch of uh, folks mostly from the New York City area who, um, and many of them sort of Ivy Leaguers who uh, all ended up for a variety of reasons uh, getting into meditation in the 60s and 70s, um, some of them over in uh, India, others of them back here at home. Many of these folks have been on this podcast before, uh, Mark Epstein, Sharon Salzberg, and the like, uh, and Danny is uh, part of that group and has been for years and also has been just super influential for me as a as as a writer and also as a friend, uh, just as by way of, an, uh, of example. Not long after 10% Happier came out, he called me a couple months after and said, hey, good for you, glad the book's doing well, but now you're getting people excited about meditation. What are you going to actually do to help them meditate? Uh, which was a really, <laughs> I didn't have a, an answer at the moment, but, it, uh, but it, it led ultimately to me getting involved in starting the 10% Happier app and and this podcast and uh, a lot of the projects that I'm now in this upcoming book that I'm working on, the road trip we've done across the country. Anyway, long way of saying Danny's been a huge and I think very positive influence on me. And I think you'll be fascinated to hear his backstory and some of the stuff he's working on. So here we go. Danny Goldman. From ABC, this is the 10% Happier podcast. I'm Dan Harris. Thank you very much for doing this. I'm happy to do it, Dan. Let me ask you the question I always ask, which is how did you get into this whole meditation racket? It was one of those happy accidents. You know, I didn't really plan on it. You never really plan on the best things that happen in your lives. I was um, spending my first winter in graduate school uh, writing a paper about suicide. (laughs) (laughs) In graduate school, and I, I was pretty depressed myself. Yeah, yeah. yeah. this is at Harvard. This in, is at Harvard in, the in clinical psychology, yeah. first year. And uh, all of a sudden, there's a knock on my apartment door, and this beautiful woman is standing there. And I was very happy to see her, but I had no idea who she was. And she said she had been in uh, a monastery in Kathmandu and gotten the message that her sister was getting married, and she should come back to the states. So in Delhi, she stayed in a rooming house where a friend of mine was staying who had been writing me as he went around the world and wasn't sure any of the letters were getting to me. So he gave her a letter to hand-delivered to me because it turned out she lived outside Boston. So here she is. So this is uh, way before email. This is way before email. I think the people who invented email weren't even born. (laughs) So the other other option was smoke signal. (laughs) This was ancient days. Okay. And um, she said, "You know, uh, I got to the states and I found out my sister backed out of the wedding. So I only have two things to do. One is deliver this letter to you, and the other is I'm supposed to go see this guy who's up in New Hampshire. I I don't I couldn't even remember what the name was. She told me. I said." Well, why don't I drive you there, (laughs) considering the alternative, which was a suicide paper? So happily, she said, yes, that made me more than 10% happier right on the spot. (laughs) And um, we get up there, and it's a a big estate, and there's this guy in a room in one of the outbuildings who uh, is sitting on the floor with his eyes closed, and the walls are papered with these gaudy posters. It turns out to be Hindu deities. I'd never seen anything like it. And uh, we come in, and he doesn't say a thing. He doesn't even look at us, doesn't open his eyes. And this woman sits down and does the same thing. Well, I'd never been in a situation like this. I didn't know what the heck was going on. So I waited and waited, and, and then finally he opened his eyes, and he started talking. And it turned out that he was Richard Alpert. And I knew Richard Alpert, because uh, he and Timothy Leary had both been fired from the very department I was enrolled in at Harvard. And, of course, they were notorious as the tune-in, turn-on, and drop-out duo who were 
making psychedelics very popular around the country. They were fire. The proximate cause for the firing was giving psilocybin to, to in a in a study or something like that. Uh, they the, yes, the, the supposed cause was that they had given psychedelics to undergraduates without approval of the university. Gotcha. The actual cause uh, had to do with their not giving psychedelics to an undergraduate who really wanted them. <laughs> really? <laughs> yes. That's another story. So anyway, um, we start talking, and it turns out that um, Alpert has now become Ramdas. He had just come back from India. That was his Hindu name, Ramdas. He was given that name by his uh, by an old yogi named Neem Kroli Baba. And the reason he was sitting there with his eyes closed was he was doing something called meditation, which I'd vaguely heard about, but I'd never seen in the wild. <laughs> and there he was. And uh, and then we, I, we ended up talking about uh, people we knew in common because I was in the same department he'd been from. And as a member of the graduate student colloquium committee on the spot, I invited him to come back to Harvard and give a talk, which he did a couple months later. Uh, and I, well, maybe sooner than that, come to think of it, because it was only the second talk he'd given after coming back from India, and he was very fired up. He started at 7 a.m. and I think finished at 2. I had to bribe the janitor to keep the, the uh, room going. 7 a.m. or 7 p.m.? He started 7 p.m. and finished at 2 a.m. So this was the talk he gave? Yeah, and people wow. were just magnetized because this guy was full of energy and yeah. really and saying these amazing things about alternate sta- altered states of consciousness or... Uh, you know, how meditation can change you and transform you if you do it for years and years, like this yogi named Koli Baba that he studied with. And, uh, and I was pretty impressed. And so I ended up going to a summer camp that he ran in that same estate, which was his father's. His father had been president of what was then the New Haven Railroad. And uh, we learned yoga and we learned meditation. And I ended up going to India and uh, spending time with his teacher, Neem Koli Baba. But that's how I got into meditation. I tried, by the way, TM in college. Transcendental meditation. Yes. yes. Which is the, the the guy, Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, who started that, became quite popular in those days because he was briefly the guru to the Beatles. And that made him very famous. Yeah. And so I had tried that, and that was nice, except you're supposed to do it 20 minutes twice a day, and I was an undergrad, and I was chronically sleep-deprived, so... Every second meditation would be a nap for mm. me, which was pleasant, but it wasn't really when I was I was expecting something more from meditation. And uh, so I kind of let that drop. But this is I really picked it up again uh, with Ram Dass and going to India. And, and in India, I met people who were, you'd have to say, pretty hardcore meditators, like that was what their life was about. And I also experienced them as some of the most upbeat, wonderful people and energizing that I'd ever run into. And then when I came back to Harvard to tell people this, that, you know, there's something in your, something that you may not know about in your psychology, they were totally negative. Really? Totally negative. Well, give me a sense of how negative they were. Uh, so I, I uh, told my uh, clinical psychology instructor that I was going to do a dissertation on meditation and stress reactivity, a physiological study. And he, he said, uh, we started talking about it, and then we got on the idea of a mantra, a sound, Sanskrit sound that you repeat silently in your mind. And he said, how is that any different than my obsessive patients who can't stop saying shit, 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 shit? I mean, he was he was confused, you know. He, he thought was, it was Tourette's. He thought it was Tourette's, but they didn't have that diagnosis then. So he, but anyway, he was just saying they they were totally dismissive. In other words, in those days, the clinical psychology lens was very reductive. Uh, psychedelics were called originally psychotomimetics, meaning they mimic psychosis, huh. and all of uh, anything having to do with the change in consciousness or managing your mind back then was seen as somehow transgressive and probably dangerous. So given that you were reared in this environment, what, what about your background or personality allowed you to take all this stuff seriously? Because I've seen the, the, the old film of Ram Dass, and that, that was a weird scene. 
A weird scene? How was it weird? Well, everybody's dancing around. They're oh. they're like full on. Oh, we had a good time. Full, yeah, yeah, it looked <laughs> fun, but it was pretty weird. I mean, in, uh-huh. I'm not saying that in a, right. in a negative way, but it's, yeah, you probably saw films of Sufi dancing. I don't, I've seen him do, teaching yoga on the yard. I, yeah. I there's a whole documentary about um, him called Fierce Grace. In that documentary, there's old footage. I highly recommend the documentary to everybody. And there's old footage of him teaching yoga on the lawn at his daddy's estate and all that stuff. And and so I'm just wondering, given that you were in a pretty straight-laced environment at Harvard, mm. uh, getting your graduate mm-hmm. degree in psychology, what? Why yeah. was this? Why so, was this okay for you? I had a kind of weird childhood. Okay. So I was. Uh, Born in uh, the Central Valley of California, which is like the Midwest of California. Uh, but my father's best friend, who we saw often, was a professor of Asian languages at Berkeley. Uh, and he was a guy who's quite interesting. He, in 1917, if you could imagine, was a cadet in a military school in Vladivostok, Russia. His father was the head of the Russian army in that part of the country. The revolution breaks out, and he's got to flee for his life. And he ends up traveling through Asia, and it turns out he's a savant. He picks up languages. He ended up speaking 30 languages or more. He founded the Asian language department at Berkeley. He and my father met in a Sanskrit class. My father was a linguist. And uh, they became very close friends. They were, you know, roomed together in Berkeley and stuff. So I knew him, and he kind of brought a different um, sense of the world in with him, like he was uh, was somehow very Asian. And also my father uh, made a point of bringing me to experiences like meeting a Zen teacher uh, when I was in high school. And this was in the early 60s. Actually, maybe late fifties, and you know, it was just out of the ordinary. And for my bar mitzvah, my sister gave me a book called uh, "Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind." Oh yeah, and Shinryo uh, Suzuki, yeah, yeah. Suzuki, and yeah. also um, that other really good one. I can see the cover; it's a yellow cover, and it was one of the earliest books on Zen. It was stories of Zen enlightenment episodes. So you know, these were kind of background, osmotic, formative experiences, but it gave me a sense that was there was more to understanding the mind than I was learning at Harvard in clinical psychology, and that uh, the East Asia really had some wisdom about this that was worth exploring. And I think that that plus the fact that I learned by accident that the Ford Fellowship that sent me to Harvard had in it a year of travel and study abroad. Hmm. And I had a wonderful professor there, David McClellan, who actually had hired and fired Leary and Alpert. He was chairman of the department at that point, uh, who kind of fronted for me. And he said, okay, this guy's going to go to India, and he's going to do some research. And uh, he, he made it all okay. And so I had a free trip to India, and I had a reason to go. And so you ended up spending a year there? Uh, two years altogether. Wow. Yeah. I had a postdoc also that brought me back to India. So how, how many different forms of meditation were you studying? What? what? Well, you know, uh, I, w- I was open to everything. So I, I actually was trying to figure it out. My first book, which is now called Meditative Mind. But can I just give it a brief plug? Because I, I find this book fascinating, and I know you wrote it. You've expressed to me some sheepishness about the fact it was written at the early part of your career, et cetera, et cetera. But it is a great and brief synthesis of the various paths to enlightenment in, in contemplative traditions. And for anybody who's interested in comparing these paths and and just le- sort of learning what they are and seeing the commonalities, which are striking, especially given that these come out of cultures that are disconnected in space and time, it's a fascinating read. Thank you, Dan, for that. And um, I'm revising it and bringing it out fresh and updated in uh, December. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay, cool. Be- because I feel that the book I'm just finished, which is uh, called Altered Traits, Science Reveals How meditation transforms mind, body, and brain, is going to revive interest in that other book. Yes, so yes. I better update it because it's very embarrassing. You're right. <laughs> it's not embarrassing <laughs> uh, you found for it, your you friends. Found, yeah, well, I wrote it because I was trying to figure out what is the difference between what Sufis do and 
yogi, Hindu yogis do and Zen and how does it all map on each other. And um, luckily I had a lot of time in India. There's not much to do in those days. It was before, as you point out, before the digital age. I spent a monsoon season in a village uh, that uh, had one bus come through once a day. It was in the foothills of the Himalayas, very remote. Whatever was available in the store was what ripened that week <laughs> or what they brought in on the, the truck that came in every week. So, you know, it was very remote. And um, I was able to plow through a very fat book, which I summarized in Meditative Mind, the Vasudhimagga. It's an ancient text. It's a yes. fifth century text for meditators. The worst thing about it is it was written before printing. It was writ It's a text which is meant to be memorized. And so there's a huge amount of boring repetition in it. It's a very fat book, but I had nothing else to do. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I read it by kerosene lamp. You know, the, the house I was in, there was a cow downstairs. It was like <laughs> a native village. Ramdas and other people were there because Joseph's teacher, Manindra. Oh, well, you should say who Joseph is. Oh, Joseph Goldstein, who, by the way, has done a wonderful uh, meditation app. Joseph Goldstein, I met first in Bogaya, India, in uh, December, November of 1970. He'd been there four or five years studying with a teacher there, Manindra, how to do the post meditation, which is mindfulness, is Vipassana. Spinner. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, so his teacher, Anagarika Manindra, whom I also studied with for a while, not f five years like Joseph, maybe three months. Anyway, he had said to a group of us who had gathered in Bodh Gaya, which by then included Ramdas in his second trip back to India, that he would meet us in this little tiny village in the Himalayas, Kosani. So we all went up to this little tiny village. And then he wrote a letter saying, oh, I'm so sorry. There's illness in my family. I can't come. <laughs> so we had each other and we had the books we brought. And that's how I started what became The Meditative Mind. But one of the books I brought was this very fat uh, meditator's manual, the Vasudhimagga, which comes from the 5th century. And it describes the entire path from getting your mind to stay with your breath and mindfulness up through all the states and places you go on the way to what they call uh, nibbana, which is a kind of an enlightenment in that language. Yeah, the other way to pronounce that would be nirvana. That's the Sanskrit form, yes. and it's more widely known in English, exactly. Yes. Anyway, so here I am doing all of these weird things. No wonder my department thought I was out <laughs> there. So I tell that whole story in, the, in this uh, new book, Altered Traits, which will come out in September. You can get it now, I think, probably on Amazon. But uh, I, I go into more detail on how that all happened because what it did was lead me and my good friend Richard Davidson, who's a neuroscientist at the University of Wisconsin now, who's a fellow graduate student, uh, to get really serious about this meditation stuff. Richie as we call him, was the one guy back at Harvard who was open to all this. Richie, by the way, is a previous guest on this podcast, a, a once and future guest because I'm sure he'll come back on. Uh, but just, just so listeners right. know, you can go hear from Richie if you want to scroll through the podcast feed. So, um, so you guys have written this book together, which will come out in September. We wrote that book together. So do you – and this may be a question that I may want to ask you – in more depth when you come back on to talk more fully about that book, the upcoming book, Altered Traits, which I have not yet read. But do you, is enlightenment real? Is nirvana a thing? Well, actually, it's not a thing, but is it, is it a, a, an actual phenomenon? So the reason we call the book Altered Traits is that what the research shows verifies the claims made, say, in this 5th century book, Vasudhimagga. That is to say there is a ongoing transformation of being, which I'll be happy to tell you about in detail when the book comes out. Okay. But in other words, the short answer is yes. Yes. So let me ask you another question that is related to this, but I don't think we'll walk on the subject matters we'll want to cover um, when the book comes out. Maybe it does, so you can feel free to swat it away. But what I find so interesting about The Meditative Mind, the book, that your first book, is just seeing how these, as I said before, these cultures that aren't connected by chronology or geography 
seem to have arrived at many of the same uh, conclusions or experiences uh, about um, transcending the ego or the voice in the head, et cetera, et cetera. How would you describe the commonality among those experiences? Well, first of all, I question your assumption that they had no contact. Uh, there's a book that just came out. I saw it reviewed in, in briefly in The New Yorker about the ancient world hmm. and how much contact there was. Uh, uh, you know, there was trade from China to the Mediterranean. But I don't know that the shamans in the jungles of, uh, of uh, Brazil had much contact with... Well, so there are two ways yeah. I, I look at that. One is that the human central nervous system and brain is designed the same around the world. Yes, yes. And you can do certain things with it and can't do other things with it. Yes. And there probably is a lot of spontaneous rediscovery in different areas of different ways you can play with the mind or game the mind or hack the mind or transform the mind. I think that's one answer. The other answer is, you know, there were uh, Buddhist monks in Alexandria. Egypt. Egypt. The Desert Fathers, who were the first Christian monks in the second century, were in that same area. And oddly enough, the uh, methods they used, like having a beaded, having beads, fingering beads, and doing a mantra with each bead, is identical to what Tibetans or yogis are doing or Hindu yogis are doing today. And I don't think it's an accident. I think they, you know, the, I th my own feeling is there was a lot of uh, uh, contact and transmission of what, what were state-of-the-art technologies in those days. That's amazing. Um, okay, so just b getting back on your chronology, you spend a bunch of time in India. You meet all these other young Westerners who are into this stuff too, who then go on to become a group that is sometimes referred to as the Jubus, you, uh, uh, Richie Davidson, Joseph Goldstein, a younger guy, Mark Epstein, Sharon Salzberg, um, the list goes on. Um, did you, but you, you, unlike many of these other people, did not become a meditation teacher. So what, how did you incorporate it into your career? Because you went on to write for the oh, New York Times. Well, yeah, so I incorporated it into my life. I don't know that I incorporated it into my career like you. I'm a meditator who does news. Yeah. I'm a science journalist yeah. by training. That's my craft. And that's what I did at the New York Times for 12 years until I wrote Emotional Intelligence and I could quit my day job. So the, uh, the reporting of science in a way that makes it accessible to the general reader who has no training uh, is like my one trick. I'm a one-trick pony. That's what I do. That's what my books are. It's a pretty good trick. It's a, it's a useful one. And when I first uh, left Harvard to go into journalism, people were scandalized in academia. They thought, what a waste of good education. Mm. After a while, they started coming saying, you know, could you write about my research? <laughs> but it took a while for them to understand that actually you got more attention there than you did in academics, in academia. So... Um, for me, meditation has mostly been something that helps me with my day and with my life. Uh, and it doesn't necessarily uh, inform what I write about or how I write about it. It informs how I feel as I write about it, I would say. Uh, and then I think that when I wrote Emotional Intelligence, there was some deep structure uh, that may have resonated uh, with, as you point out, how some of the similarities among spiritual traditions around the world, because the human brain is one and the same. So there are four parts of emotional intelligence, self-awareness, self-management, empathy, knowing how other people feel, and handling relationships. So that is uh, pretty universal. When emotional intelligence came out, I was uh, just really astonished at how it resonated with cultures around the world. It's in 41 languages now. How many millions of copies has it sold? I don't know. At least five, but I have. Wow. I stopped counting. Wow. wow. It's a very popular book, and I think it is because it's a science book. It's a book that tells you why you do those weird things that you do that you wish you hadn't done uh -huh. right after you do them. Yeah, I still do that. Yeah, I do too. Yeah. Of course. Okay. So meditation do. is not a cure-all. Meditation <laughs> is not a cure-all, which is something I wanted to bring up because I'm as, – as someone who's looked deeply into the science of meditation, uh, I, I feel that uh, 
mindfulness, for example, is overhyped, particularly in the business world. And having said that, I should also say that uh, my assistant adores your app that you did with Joseph. Oh, right. You were starting to talk about this. Yes, yes, yeah. yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, He was just telling me today, be sure to tell Dan how much (laughs) I like it. So, uh, you know, I think that that's it's wonderful that more people are meditating. What, I, what makes me um, nervous is how the uh, uh, meditation research is being misrepresented, particularly when you get into the business world and start selling the service of teaching people mindfulness to companies. Because what you're doing is monetizing mindfulness in a way it was never meant to be. I think mindfulness should be spread everywhere, every way it can because it's helpful to people. And the research makes that abundantly clear. But it's not helpful in every way. For example, there's a, uh, a lot of action now around mindful leadership. And I've uh, emotional intelligence got me very involved in the research in, uh, on leadership and what makes people highly effective leaders or high-performing in whatever they do. Mindfulness helps, definitely, but it's not the whole deal. And it's being talked about or sold as though all you need is mindfulness, when in fact, I think mindfulness gives you a a foundation, uh, helps you stay more calm, more focused. Uh, If you do uh, what's called metta or loving-kindness meditation, it helps with empathy and paying attention to other people. But it doesn't do the things that make you an outstanding leader. It's not going to make you... Uh, able to, for example, articulate a shared vision that moves people and uh, gives people a sense of a real purpose and meaning to what they do. That's a different skill. And the skills of leadership that are very well documented uh, are not the same as what mindfulness does. So that's here, here's – I've been uh, – You've got a few sheets in front uh, of you yeah, that you're, you're – yeah, just, I just want to read you yeah, some of the – particular competencies that the research on leadership shows make a difference. Before you do that, let me just back up for one second. As they say at Amica, empathy is our best policy. Whether you need auto, home, or life insurance, they're ready to help you protect the things that matter most to you. They're a mutual company, customer-owned, in service to you. Amica representatives are here when you need them, and you can take comfort knowing a real person will be there on the phone to take care of you because the greatest measure of their success is your satisfaction. You can count on T-Mobile to help keep you connected after investing billions to light up their network from big cities to small towns. T-Mobile is America's largest 5G network. Plus, when you switch to T-Mobile, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus Verizon and AT&T. Visit your neighborhood store or T-Mobile.com to switch. Plan savings with T-Mobile, third line free on essentials via monthly bill, credits versus comparable available plans. Plan features may vary. Credits stop if you cancel or change plans. Can you just you t- you walk through the four parts of emotional intelligence? But can you just give us the brief backstory on how you came to the subject? What the what if you could condense the thesis of the book, and uh, for sure. us just for those of us who well, aren't familiar with it. Okay, so um, I went to um, uh, very competitive schools. After actually, I went to public high school in California. It was not competitive at all. But then I went to a college that at the time was the hardest to get into in the country. I was just very lucky to get in. They thought, oh, we'll diversify. In the 60s, that meant a kid from a farm town in California who did not go to a prep school. Gotcha. That was me. That's, yeah. Yeah. And then I went to Harvard and so on. So uh, I noticed that people there, even though they were in the top 0.001% of SAT scores, whatever, didn't necessarily succeed in life and in the career. And that uh, people that I had known, for example, in my high school who were so-so students actually ended up being CEOs. So what's going on here? And then I I realized that it's how they handled themselves and particularly how they managed relationships that made them highly successful in their careers. And 
I'm a, I'm a child of academics. Both my parents were professors. And the, the big heresy of emotional intelligence is, hey, you know what? When you're in school, everybody talks about your scores, your IQ, how, your grades, your GPA. But once you get into your career, nobody cares. <laughs> it's how well you do at your job. Mm -hmm. It's how well you function on a team. It's how well you perform as an individual and as a leader. That's a different skill set. Nobody tells you this in school. So that, that was the personal insight. And then when I started looking at the data on the, the brain, uh, which I did as a science journalist at the Times, I saw that, well, you know, the system that manages ourselves and our relationships is completely different, although very enmeshed with the system that makes us good at taking tests. Hmm. They are not the same. And that uh, because the circuitry differs so much, we have to respect that there's a different way of being smart. Then in 1990, when I still the Times, a guy who was now the president of Yale, Peter Salovey, who was then an assistant professor or something, wrote an article in an obscure journal called Emotional Intelligence. And I saw that phrase and said, wow, that is terrific. Because first of all, it sounds like an oxymoron. You don't think of intelligence and emotions, at least in those days, uh, in the same breath. But I realized it's really saying you can be intelligent about emotion. And then I used that framework to organize a book which was really about what the brain research tells us, what the competencies of being intelligent about emotions and relationships are. And then I was really arguing in the book for bringing this into uh, elementary education, high school education, K through 12, which, by the way, in the 20 years since then has become a very robust movement. Social and emotional learning. Exactly. Well, how does one train in emotional intelligence? How do I boost my EQ? Well, mindfulness is a good start because – so what is emotional intelligence first? You said there are four parts, self-awareness. Well, that's what mindfulness – does it brings you into a focus on yourself in, in a very intimate way, and you start to notice the the thoughts and the feelings that would just uh, go by or take you over without you being aware of that. So it cultivates self awareness. That's one of the powers of mindfulness. Another, the next step in emotional intelligence is managing yourself, self regulation. And if you are not mindful, you can't do it. Right. If you don't see your inner torrent, yeah. you're going to be owned by it. Exactly. But then there are other parts of uh, emotional intelligence. These are competencies based on self-management that make people outstanding as high performers or as leaders that mindfulness doesn't help you much with. One is uh, striving toward goals even when you have setbacks. Might help, but not much. It's, it, that's really a different skill set mentally. Uh, having a positive outlook, interpreting things as opportunities rather than defeats, that's a way of thinking. It's not mindfulness per se. Or just being adaptable, you know, and having, being able to get out of a fixed routine when it's not working and try something new. Uh, that's a skill that makes someone emotionally intelligent and a good leader, but not necessarily uh, developed by mindfulness. So these are cognitive rather than contemplative skills. Well, I wouldn't say they're purely cognitive. They're both emotional and cognitive, gotcha. but they're not contemplative. Gotcha. So, so let me just well, let me push you on that. Sure. Because I've found in my own experience that meditation has helped me separate signal from noise so that when I have setbacks, and I have them all the time, I'm a little less likely to go down the rabbit hole of useless rumination and able to uh, uh, see more clearly the road ahead and the opportunities mm -hmm. ahead. And similarly... Uh, so that that is the I resilience think that's true. piece. Yeah. And then there was another piece you were talking about that somehow a uh, goal achieving goals. Yeah, achieving yeah. goals the same thing. Like uh, mm -hmm. I uh, there are all these things I want and uh, just having the injection of common perspective that mindfulness gives you helps me see what really matters. So well let, I, let me push back on that. Okay, great. Do you need mindfulness to know to think about what really no. matters? No. No. Exactly. No. So I, I, let's not conflate the two. Uh, no, I don't, I don't conflate them. I just think that they're additive and, right. and supportive. I think so, too. Yeah. I think mindfulness helps uh, pretty much across the board. It's necessary. I don't think it's sufficient. That's all I'm saying. So, Fair for point. example, yes. Yes, uh, yes. with um, positive outlook, uh, there's one of the um, 
very powerful ways they've discovered of treating depression, serious depression, is mindfulness-based cognitive therapy. Which, can we just say that your wife has, has done some, some work in that area? She wrote well? the first yes. book, yeah. Putting Together Mindfulness and Cognitive Therapy, yeah. which is called Emotional Alchemy, yeah. which is to this day a wonderful book. But how can I say that? It's my wife. Of course I have to say that. It's, it's widely if, embraced as a, as a wonderful book, it, it let me is. just say. Thank in, you in very her, much. Tara's, yes, exactly. uh, support. Tara Bennett-Goleman yes, is the author. Yes. So uh, the, the interesting thing is that phrase, mindfulness-based cognitive therapy. What it base. means is mindfulness is the base. It helps you see your thoughts and feelings. And then cognitive therapy tells you you don't have to believe those thoughts. And that's a very powerful intervention, but that's a cognitive intervention which is separate from mindfulness per se. Put them together and you have something that's very potent, but they separate. Mm-hmm. So there's your, your cognitive outlook and positive outlook is, is purely cognitive. Mindfulness may help you get there, but it may not necessarily help you get there. There could be someone who's very mindful and very depressed and just mindful of, oh, here's that lousy feeling again right? and noticing and noticing it. However, cognitive therapy tells them, hey, whenever that comes up, think about, don't think about, look at what you're telling yourself. I'm no good. It will never change. Challenge those thoughts. Uh, Well, that's a cognitive act. It's not mindfulness per se. So So, mindfulness helps. Yeah, I was going to bring you back to your sheets. Yeah, sure. There you go. Okay. So then another place, uh, another ability of outstanding leaders is empathy and loving kindness, actually, that which is often paired with mindfulness, does help you with that. And that is a kind of meditation where you systematically envision uh, other beings and send them good vibes. And there's a lot of science that suggests that that, um, that actually has right. not only health benefits, but behavioral Exactly. Benefits. But then there's another one, which is called organizational awareness, which is being able to read the map of your organization, know who's influential, know who to go to and make a decision, know how to persuade them so that in that next meeting they're going to speak up for you. That's not that You don't learn that in mindfulness per se. You learn it in – that's social intelligence basically, something else. I see that. So, yeah. so you're – again, when I interrupted you when you were looking at the sheets in front of you, your concern was – your concern, if I recall, was that somehow mindfulness is being – Injected into the corporate world and sold as a as a panacea, but exactly. in fact, it leaves things yeah. out. Yeah, so I'm um, managing conflict. That's another ability of outstanding leaders. Mindfulness may not help you there very much because it's so interpersonal, and it, it can it, help you stay calm, but it isn't necessarily going to help you with the getting to win win. And and those of us who have uh, any visibility into meditation communities around the, this country and around the world will know there's plenty of conflict <laughs> in those organizations. Yes, 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 exactly. Yeah, or teamwork. That's another play. I mean, that has to do. You learn that you know, playing soccer as a kid, not doing mindfulness on a cushion, particularly. All I'm saying is, there's a skill set. Uh, and if you're interested in that skill set, I recommend uh, going to morethansound.net, where I put all of this into into books and videos and so on. Well, tell us more about what's there at More Than Sound, because that, that you, you and your son have really built this up as a right. place where people can go for resources to learn about emotional intelligence. Exactly. What else is there? Uh, there's um, a couple of things that people m- might be interested in. One is a little book called... Um, the brain and emotional intelligence, which goes into the brain level of what's happening as you manage yourself or you handle relationships skillfully. There's a book called What Makes a Leader, uh, which has all of my articles from the Harvard Business Review. I've been writing there for quite a while. And uh, the, the article called What Makes a Leader, which I wrote in 98, is still one of their, I think it's the second most requested reprint wow. to this day. Wow. Um, I have to say, between you and me and people listening, they have all rights to that. They paid me 100 bucks for that. <laughs> I think I endowed a chair at the business school by now. I don't know. But at any rate, I, I put together all of the articles from the business review uh, in this What Makes Leader. It's at More Than Sound. And also we're going into primers on each of these competencies. Um, we have one on self-awareness, self-regulation, positive outlook. We're doing – one a month, uh, if you, if anyone is interested in, <clears throat> you know, well, what is this? Why does it matter? How can I do it? Great. Yeah. Great. So that's what's there. 
more than sound.net. Um, any other concerns as mindfulness you've watched? You've had a front row seat as mindfulness yeah. has gone mainstream over the last couple of decades, led in part by another member of this cabal, the aforementioned uh, Jubu's John Kabat-Zinn, a very close friend of yours and uh, somebody who I admire greatly and, and uh, have uh, some personal connections with as well. Are you? How do you feel about what's happened as a result of this snowball that you helped set in motion back in India in the 60s? Well, I'm thrilled uh, that it's happening. And I think that my quibbles are just at the edges gotcha. of the movement. I think it's wonder. You know, it was a dream. Uh, there were two things that I dreamed of happening in America when I was in India. One was that people would meditate and that this would not be a weird thing, but just a matter of fact. We do it at business. We do it at school. We do it. I do it every day. Not a big deal. The other was that you could get chai somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> Both of these things have happened. Both things yes. have come to be. I'm just thrilled with Which, that. Chai is more easily accessible than meditation, I hate uh, to say. Maybe, maybe. Every Starbucks in the country has yes, a chai. That's true. Chai. Well, soon they'll have a meditation room. Well, you know what? Perhaps. Yeah. Who knows? Yeah. So you don't think you, you have – do you have some compo- – uh, some? Uh, you you talked a little bit about you know mindfulness for profit and having some worries about that. I'm in the business of mindfulness for profit at the app. Um, is that should is that something I should take a hard look at? I don't think so. Um, I, I make a distinction. Richie and I in our book uh, talk about um, people who are very serious about meditation who do it very deeply. Uh, if you go to Insight Meditation Society, for example, where Joseph teaches, he's a founding teacher with Sharon Salzberg, uh, you can do uh, a, you know, a 10-day retreat or a three-month retreat. And that's uh, all just at cost. And if you want to give something to teachers, it's called dana. It's a donation. It's cognate, same word. Uh, it's not mandatory. So they're doing it uh, in the way it's traditionally done. So there's no, it's, that's not monetized. But it's made available. That's the way it, I think deep practice should be. You're doing something else with your app and other people are doing, which is spreading it very widely. And I think that to spread it widely, uh, you need to use whatever means the culture and technology and society gives you. And so there's the digitization is inevitable, but it makes it much more widely available. And I, I think you have to pay for that. Yeah. You know, you have to... Well, it costs money to, to make it available. Exactly. You know, on, on our yeah. end, we have to, you know, we have to get investors, <clears throat> right. et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, I write books about, I've written books about meditation, but they're books. People have to pay for the books. Yes, yes. I want to give p- readers a sense of your bibliography before we close. But before mm-hmm. we do that, um, can you just give me a sense of what your daily practice is like now? Well, I All started. All these years hence? Yeah. So I, I started with TM. Uh, that kind of faded away. I, then in India, I picked up mindfulness and what's called insight or vipassana meditation. And then I segued from that to a Tibetan form of vipassana, which is called Dzogchen. And now that's the practice I do. So what is what do you do in your mind when you're doing Dzogchen? Well, that's a very private uh, oh, really? thing. Yeah. You, cause, okay, because people talk about Vipassana readily, but Dzogchen is a little bit more... Um, but Dzogchen is what's called a non-dual practice, mm-hmm. which means that it uh, is not at the level of thoughts. Uh, it rather... And like Vipassana, uh, thoughts are treated as arisings that pass away in the mm-hmm. mind that you don't have to get sucked in by. And uh, it's like Vipassana, you create a kind of a platform in awareness where you can uh, – that allows you a steadiness that lets other things come and go. And uh, how, how much do you do a day of this? Uh, not enough. <laughs> Depends on the day. I like to do a lot. I wish I were doing retreat, but I don't seem to be able to schedule it much. Well, I've known you for several years. I, during that time, you've, I've seen you take – and your wife as well takes some pretty long retreats. Last year or so, it's not so much. So. I see, because you're yeah. working on all these books. Uh, many reasons, whatever the reasons, I think yeah. that it also says I don't prioritize retreat enough. Yeah. yeah. Well, Joseph's on my case about that. As is well. that right? Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. As we speak. Right. Well, <clears throat> Joseph is a very high bar. He's a guy who does his own retreats every year for, I, I don't know, a couple months. Three months. Yes. Three months. He's yeah. coming out of a three-month soon. Is he? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So – 
um, the books that I've read by you that I can easily talk about are mm-hmm. Meditative Mind, as we've discussed, also mm-hmm. Emotional Intelligence, and an excellent book you wrote in the recent years called Focus, which really talks about um, what the title suggests, how we stay focused. Um, what, are, what are some other books that uh, in- interested listeners might check out? Well, uh, there's a book called Social Intelligence, which explains how the, how the brain operates in relationships. There's a book called Ecological Intelligence, uh, which is about the environment and why we are so bad about uh, our impacts on the environment and what could be done about that. There's uh, the book just about to be published in September, which is Altered Traits, which pulls together all of the meditation research that's been done so far. With with Richie Davidson. And I actually left out one book that I have read, that uh, the title of which is evading me, but it's about the Dalai Lama. Uh, Force for Good, which yes. I wrote for the Dalai Lama's 80th birthday, which is his uh, vision of how people can uh, use mindfulness and other methods to manage themselves better so they're calm and clear, adopt an ethic of compassion, caring and concern, and then act. He's really a social activist. I was pretty surprised to see that. But uh, it's it's his program for uh, what he would love to see people do in, with their lives as around meaning, purpose, and making a difference. And then uh, I've done a lot of work on education, as, as you suggest. I, I did a book that More Than Sound has uh, with Peter Senge, who is an expert on systems learning and systems thinking, uh, saying that um, in addition to social-emotional learning, which we should talk about someday, Dan. It'll be in the podcast. Yeah. Tell me, you can do yeah. it now. Social emotional, the mic is yours. Social-emotional learning... Uh, takes emotional intelligence, those four components, self-awareness, management, empathy, social skill, and embeds it in the curriculum for kids K through 12 in a way that it doesn't take that much time, but it helps them learn, you know, the ele- well, let me put it differently. There's a line of development that every child goes through, which is emotional, and this has to do with how the brain develops. And another line, which is social, which also has to do with how the brain develops and how they manifest in relationships or how the kid handles himself or herself. And right now, we leave that learning to chance. Mm. And I think we do so uh, you know, in a, a way that puts us at risk. So I have a two-year-old. What do I do about this? Because I, I take it seriously. Right. Relax. You're doing fine. Oh, I don't know. You should see him. <laughs> First of all, he's still pooping in his pants. I'm not sure that's a good thing. Yeah, so pay, pay no attention to those norms. Every child is different. Uh, but but I take very seriously the idea of my highest goal for him is to be a, a good guy. Right. And I don't and, know how. See, you are the your child's coach. Every parent is a child's yeah. coach and mentor. And in every little interaction, you're teaching something about how to be a human being. So you're doing it naturally. It's called good enough parenting. So if, you're, if, if you uh, create what's called a secure base for your child where he knows uh, that you care about him, that you tune in to him, you notice what's going on in him, that you'll protect him, that he can trust you, that creates a core of security that your child will bring into every relationship through life. So just by being a good enough parent you're already helping your child become emotionally intelligent. But what I saw is that, you know, there are a lot of kids in this country that grow up uh, in very dysfunctional situations, Mm -hmm. and they don't have that sense of security, or or they don't learn how to manage their anger because they have parents who blow up, who beat them, whatever it may be. And it was for that reason I thought this should be in schools so that every child has an opportunity to learn how to know what you're feeling, how to manage your disruptive feelings, how to tune into other kids' feelings, how to get along, how to collaborate, how to cooperate. They're, they're basics for life. And they're also, this is really interesting, if you reverse engineer those competencies that we found make outstanding leaders, it, it goes back to learning these things in childhood. Wow. And in fact, when they've done studies with outstanding leaders, about how did you learn to be so good at leading a team, they go back to like, oh, in middle school, this happened to me. I had this experience. So it starts in childhood. And, uh, you know, a, a healthy family will help a child get the right foundation. But 
it doesn't hurt to be sure every child gets the right lessons at the right point developmentally through life. It's a social justice issue. There's no question about it. Yes. Um, well, I say this as somebody who's completely biased because you're my friend, but just talking to you about the scope of your work, I hope you're able to appreciate at times the amount of impact you've had, not only in the corporate cultures, um, also in education and young lives, and also just by dint of that curiosity that sent you over to India and got you mobbed up with these other folks who got interested in meditation way before it was cool, and uh, that has allowed for somebody like me uh, who would never have otherwise approach this stuff if I didn't see smart, scientifically-minded people who are into it and modeling it as a, as a behavior that I wanted to emulate. Uh, so you've had just a major impact. I just want to make that point before we close. Well, Dan, that's very kind of you. Sincerely said. And, and uh, thank you for coming on. And, and uh, I just want to let everybody know you'll be back in the not-too-distant future to talk about this new book, which is coming out in September. Absolutely, I promise. Love it. Thank Thanks. you, my friend. Okay, there's another edition of the 10% Happier Podcast. If you liked it, please make sure to uh, subscribe, rate us. And uh, if you want to suggest topics we should cover or guests uh, we should bring in, hit me up on Twitter at Dan B. Harris. I also want to thank heartily the people who produce this podcast and really do pretty much all the work. Lauren Efron, Josh Cohan, Sarah Amos, Andrew Kalb, Steve Jones, and the head of ABC News Digital, Dan Silver. Uh, I'll talk to you next Wednesday. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. For more than two centuries, the White House has been the stage for some of the most dramatic scenes in American history. Inspired by the hit podcast American History Tellers, Wondery and William Morrow present the new book, The Hidden History of the White House. Each chapter will bring you inside the fierce power struggles, the world-altering decisions, and shocking scandals that have shaped our nation. You'll be there when the very foundations of the White House are laid in 1792, and you'll watch as the British burn it down in 1814. Then you'll hear the intimate conversations between FDR and Winston Churchill as they make plans to defeat Nazi forces in 1941. And you'll be in the Situation Room when President Barack Obama approves the raid to bring down the most infamous terrorist in American history. Pre-order The Hidden History of the White House now in hardcover or digital editions wherever you get your books. I'm Shimon Yai, and I have a new podcast called The Competition. Every year, 50 high school senior girls compete in a massive scholarship competition. I wouldn't say I have an ego problem, but I'm extremely competitive. All of the competitors are used to being the best and the brightest, and they're all vying for a huge cash prize. This will probably be the most intense that you've ever gone through in your life. I remember that feeling because I was one of them. I lost. But now I'm coming back as a judge and also a kind of teen girl anthropologist. Because if you want to understand what it's like to be a young woman in America today, the competition's not a bad place to start. Hopefully no one will die on station night. From Pineapple Street Studios and Wondery, this is The Competition. Follow The Competition on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Competition early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.